Please join with me, page 1069 in the Pew Bible, and then your Bible's there. Uh, John 6, starting with verse 4 to 15. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves and left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Continuing on the same page from verse 25. Jesus, the bread of life. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Then on to verse 48 on the next page. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food, the food, the bread of your holy word. And we want to pray that none of us would leave feeling empty. Fill us as we come to feed off you the Lord Jesus Christ. For his name's sake we pray it. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, we're in John chapter 6, as was in both of our readings. So do turn back to that if you've uh, lost it. Page 1070 is where the main chunk of it is. Let me make an assumption. We love eating, or at least I love eating. We love eating because we love being full. The average person I've worked out eats over 8 million meals in the course of their life, some more than others. I'd be towards the upper end. And that adds up to over 32,000 hours of eating in one lifetime. If you're a film buff, that's enough time to watch Die Hard 1,000, uh, sorry, 15,000 times or to become a, a concert pianist, I'm told, three times over. All that time spent on eating. And yet we'd be mad to think, wouldn't we, that that time was a waste of time. Because without food, we go through a spectrum of increasingly nasty feelings. We feel hungry, we get a tummy ache, I feel bad-tempered, and then I feel faint, I begin to scavenge for anything and everything to eat, and then somewhere down the line we die. We need to eat because we need food. We need food because food is life to us. And in this passage, Jesus makes the most extravagant claim to us. He claims that he is food to us because he is life for us, that with him we will never get that spiritually hungry feeling ever again. Our passage is a very well-known one, no doubt if we are churched or unchurched. It's called the feeding of the 5,000, but I want to suggest it needs a rebrand there were 5,000 men, if you read the passage carefully. Thank you, Jeannie, for reading that part. If you count the women and the children, why wouldn't we? It was the feeding of the 10, 11, 12. Some commentators think even 20,000 people. Now, if you follow Harlequin's rugby, if you've ever been to the stoop where their, their ground is, that is 5,000 people more than that ground can hold. So picture the scene. Jesus is there faced with a massive rugby crowd of hungry people out of range even from a cardo delivery. And there's a problem. His followers are panicked, verse 7. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. Let's break that down into the UK average wage, I'm told. They're saying 23,000 pounds would not be enough money to fix this problem right now. And then something laughable happens. It is laughable, isn't it? We'd laugh if we weren't so over-familiar with it. Verse 9, Andrew gently encourages a boy or, or, or a young man, it could be, out from the crowd clutching his little packed lunch. Now, the young man is charitable. He's kind. He's noticed there's a problem, 20,000 people and no food and rumbling tummies. So he offers his paper bag of Greg's baked goods, five barley rolls and uh, two uh, pickled fish. How sweet of him. 
How naive of him. But then Jesus steps in, verse 11. He took the loaves, gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. When they all had enough to eat, they gathered up the leftovers and filled 12 baskets with the pieces. Don't you think it must have been the most appreciated packed lunch in the history of packed lunches? With Jesus involved, there was more left at the end than there was at the beginning. I've never been part of a meal like that. It's a picture of ultimate satisfaction, of fullness, of plenty, of life. And later on, Jesus tells us why he bothered to do it. He says, it was a great big advertisement, a huge billboard I wanted to put up to display who I am and what I came to do for you. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never, no, never go hungry. Now today's our second in the series looking at the I am sayings of Jesus. Last week we saw he claims to be the I am who I am, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and it blew many of our minds Amazing. And this week, he adds a noun to those two words, I am. I am bread. I am the bread of life. He he, he adds detail to tell us what the Yahweh of the Old Testament has always been like. And he says, it's me. Now, I've got three words to take us through, three headings. If you're a note taker on the back of the notice sheet, they are as follows. Signs, blindness, and bread. Signs, blindness, and bread. Uh, The first one, signs, will help us to read John's gospel. The second one, blindness, will help us to see Jesus. And the third one, bread, will help us to feed from Jesus. So firstly, signs. You'll notice if you read chapter 6 when you get home after Sunday lunch that a great deal of the debate and discussion takes place and revolves around miraculous signs. Verse 24, some of the crowd who were fed the previous day have chased Jesus across the lake to a place called Capernaum. Jesus greets them with a challenge. I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Miraculous signs. Have a look at verse 30. The people ask Jesus, what miraculous sign will you give? Now, as with last week, we would do well to get our grammar handbook out, if you're willing, as we work out how those two words relate to one another, miraculous and signs. The word sign, you'll remember, is the noun. That is the focus, that is the thing which has been done. The word miraculous is the adjective. It is used to describe the noun. In other words, John tells us that the main focus of this whole thing is a sign, not, when it comes down to it, a miracle. Sure, the signs happen to be miraculous, but John won't let us reduce them down to miracles only. They are more than miracles. They are signs. To call them miracles only, as we so often do, myself included, would be to confuse the thing with the adjective. And here's the thing, signs, signs point away from themselves. 
Miracles tend to point to themselves. Signs point away from themselves. And if you'll excuse the pun, that is their significance. That is their significance. Imagine for a moment if a long-lost Canadian uncle wrote to me. I recognized the postmark on the envelope, and I was amazed. So amazed, in fact, that I never bothered to open the envelope. I just went around telling you all that he's written to me. He's written to me. This long-lost Canadian uncle has written to me. And you would say, well, that's fine. But what did he say? Have you opened the envelope, John? Have you read the letter? What's he like? Where's he living? Why has he been lost for so long? Why don't you open it, you stupid boy, you would say to me. Because letters tell us far more than envelopes ever could. And so it is with Jesus' signs. Just noticing that he did stuff which we couldn't do, miracles, is all very well. It has the postmark of divinity on it, and we could get excited about that postmark. But for goodness sake, we need to open the envelope and read the letter. Look at the details of the miraculous signs, for therein lies the self-communication of the sign worker. Therein lies the sign, therein lies the significance, the significance. But how common it is for people not to bother to open the envelope of Jesus' signs, to be content with the miracle, the wow factor, but to be blind to whom the sign is pointing to, to Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happened here. So our second point, blindness. It's stunning. The spiritual blindness exhibited in this passage is nothing short of extreme. Reading through, I think Jesus would have been an excellent classroom teacher. He is so patient, and he goes through and teaches the lesson from so many different perspectives. Just walk through with me. He patiently explains the point of the bread sign. It was a picture of him. Verse 29, he says, you need to believe in me. I'm the point of it. Verse 33, the bread is a metaphor, the bread is a he, the bread is a person. Verse 35, the bread is me, I am the bread. I can't think of a simpler way to put it. Verse 51, let me repeat it, you still haven't got it, the bread is me. Verses 51 to 59, so the way the picture works, Jesus is saying, is this. You know you just, by looking at bread, you can't be filled by it. By being near bread, you can't be filled by it. You need to eat bread, don't you? And they're all nodding. And he says, well, so it is with me. You need to believe in me. Or in the metaphor, you need to eat me. It is a great lesson. He takes numerous verses to explain the significance of the bread. And yet, notice the response he gets. We didn't have it read, so have a look down at verse 60. Many of his so-called disciples said, well, this is a hard teaching. And then verse 66, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus' teaching is exquisitely clear. I'm the bread. You've got to believe in me to have the life I offer. How simple is it? But the people are blind. They can't get it. They can't see what he's on about. They have a spiritual glaucoma as it were. And what caused their blindness? Well, I think we see two root causes of the blindness. Have a look down, if you would, at verses 26 
to 28. I've been very struck by this this week. Verse 26, Jesus says, You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do you see, these people were coming to Jesus for personal gain only. They think what he brings is really rather good news because he is a walking, talking food bank who requires no input of flour and yeast and requires no payment. How wonderful. He would put Tesco's out of business in a flash. So these people are saying, forget the drop in oil prices and therefore the cheap running of my car these days. That's good. But having Jesus stick around... Well, that would really drop my monthly outgoings. There'd be no need for a regular shop. Forget about a cardo altogether. He's a bakery and a fishmonger's rolled into one. That's why they've come to Jesus. They're interested in personal gain. Did you hear the anger in Jesus' voice in verse 26? Have a look down at it and read it again. He's angry. Very interesting, isn't it? We're always saying that Jesus wants everyone to come to him. And on one level, that is very true. But here's a riddle. How do you make Jesus angry by coming to him? How do you make Jesus angry by coming to him? Answer, by thinking of Jesus as useful for me rather than precious to me. I'll say that again by thinking of Jesus as useful to me rather than precious to me. Jesus came not to bring bread, but to be bread for us. And these guys just don't get it. They're blind. They just think he's a blessing vending machine. They're blessing bounty hunters. They fail to realize that he is the blessing that they need. Let me make a few provocative statements. First one, for the Christian, Jesus should be precious to us regardless of all that he's done for us. Next one, Jesus is the pearl of great price regardless of his forgiveness of us, his sanctification of us, and heaven ahead. I wonder what you think of those statements. Now, of course, all those things are rightly wonderful. I'm not denigrating them for a moment, but the key reason they are wonderful is this, because of whom they show Jesus to be, not supremely because they bless us. And if we come to church or to the Bible, if we come to Jesus and we just want Jesus to be useful to us, to be the cherry blessing on the cake of our lives, then we will be blind to Jesus himself being the blessing we were seeking all along. So selfish motives in spiritual inquiry lead to blindness. They frustrate the whole thing. Secondly, the second reason for the blindness, I think, is this, proud self-sufficiency. That leads to spiritual blindness as well. Verse 28 Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? 
Don't you think that is a profoundly arrogant question to ask? They know God has standards and requirements on human beings, but they assume they assume that they will have no problem in meeting every one of them. They just need to be educated in what they are. Just tell us what we need to do for God, and we'll do them probably on Monday afternoon, and then we'll get in his good books. It's a very arrogant question to ask. It's proud, and it's self-sufficient. The pastor and apologist Tim Keller has a great phrase. He says, all you need is nothing, but too few people have that. All you need is nothing, but too few people have that. In other words, in order to become a follower of Jesus, all we need to do is to recognize that we contribute nothing of any worth to him. We cannot do the works God requires of us. His standards are perfection. We can't even keep our New Year's resolutions, speaking autobiographically, or probably we won't be able to keep our Lenten ab, you know, um, abstinences, which we've just begun on. If we can't keep our own standards, who are we to think that we can keep God's standards? If we come to Jesus asking him only to educate us, to tell us what to do, then we are spiritually blind and we will remain so. What we need is not education, we need salvation. All you need is nothing. But too few people have that. So signs blindness, and finally, the bit I've been most looking forward to preaching, bread. After all, it is the title of the sermon, I'm the bread of life. This bit is wonderful. This is where we get practical. I have four little subheadings on the notice sheet. I think I've only got time for three, but we'll see how we go. The first, unlikely provision. Back to the feeding of the five or the 20,000, whichever number you care to run with. It is an English understatement, is it not, to say that Jesus' provision in that instance seemed unlikely. That is an understatement, isn't it? I'm told the average meal should be around 450 calories. That means that this crowd needs something close to 9 million calories provided in one go. That is why 23,000 pounds wasn't enough. Let's be generous and say that this picnic was a big Greg's picnic. Let's say it had 600 calories in it. That means that this meal is 15,000 times short of the energy it needs to provide. It is an unlikely provision, would you agree? But Jesus specializes in unlikely provision. It's how he likes to work with us today. What he does is this. He issues us a command so demanding on us such that it seems ridiculous to us. And he issues that command so that we learn to trust his plentiful promises and we learn to trust him more. So here it is the command to feed 20,000 people. Ridiculous. With us, it could be the command to give our money away to God's work in the world, so much so that we cannot any longer do what we want to do. That seems like a ridiculous command to me. Or keep sex until marriage, or speak openly about Jesus in a hostile office. His commands seem patently ridiculous to me, and I dare say to you. 
But that is the point. Every ridiculous command is issued hand in hand with an equally ridiculous promise. So the question of obedience really is a question of trust. Give generously on the money one, there's the command, and I will provide, there's the promise. Speak of Christ freely in the office, there's the command, and I will give you the words to say, there's the promise. And you know, the more we take the risk of obedience, the more we find the provision of his promises, however unlikely they may have seemed, come good. I know many of us will have experienced that personally. And so in his gracious wisdom, God has structured the Christian life such that the more we obey, the more we are encouraged to trust him. And the more we trust, the more we obey. It's the opposite of a vicious circle. I don't know, we could call it a a vital circle. It's a circle of increasing health. Now here's the thing, starting that cycle involves obedience and taking a risk It starts with trusting Christ enough to obey him in one area of our lives, obeying an ostensibly ridiculous command. Only when we take that step of obedience will we see that his provision, although apparently unlikely, will come good. So perhaps there's been someone here who's been putting off an act of radical obedience to Jesus precisely because we don't trust that he will provide for us as we do that act. Is that you? Well, can I say, please take the risk. Go for it. He will provide. It's the way we grow as disciples. Without Andrew pushing this little boy's packed lunch forward, the feeding of the 20,000 would never have happened. Unlikely provision. Secondly, excessive provision. Verse 12, they all had enough to eat. They gathered the leftovers and filled 12 baskets. John is making the point here, I think, in his gospel that Jesus provided excessively for the need there. You always know it's a good meal, don't you, when everyone has seconds and yet there's still leftovers for Monday morning or whatever the next day is. I love leftovers. And friends, John chapter 6 is a sign telling us that spiritually speaking, Jesus is more than enough for us. He's excessively enough for us. Let me share a tragedy with us. I meet so many Christians who are spiritually starving. They feel empty spiritually deep down in their souls, not content with Jesus. Why are they spiritually starving? Well, here's the killer. Here's the thing that really gets me. It's because they're not feeding off Jesus. He's there waiting to feed us in the word of God, in fellowship on a Sunday here in home group at Altogether Tuesday in that keen Christian book or that blog on the internet. He's there willing to feed us, waiting. There he is waiting to do it. And yet there we are, moping around, complaining that we feel spiritually hungry and refusing to go to him. That is a spiritual tragedy. And it gets worse, I think, because we're not allowing Jesus to feed us What do we do then? We go and snack on other things, spiritually speaking. This is speaking about me, you understand. This is what I do. 
I go and feed on the Facebook feed. Interesting, that's the noun, isn't it? Feed. Uh, BBC Sport and News, TV, magazines. That's what I go and feed on. And it's not that those things are wrong, it's just that they're not going to feed me. Even the most cultured novel or box set or symphony cannot feed me spiritually, can't do it. And so when we go to those things instead of Jesus, we are lining up for candy floss, spiritually speaking, when the spiritual bakery is just next door. And it tastes sweet, but it sure doesn't feed me. It leaves me feeling empty. So can I beg with you to feed off Jesus? I reckon in our rooted youth group, there are a tiny handful of the members there who are regularly feeding off Jesus in his word, the Bible. And can I say it shows those members of the group are growing. They are growing in their faith, and it is wonderful to see. But the others are stagnating and starving. And I just want to say, Sunday by Sunday, as we meet as a rooted youth group, feed off Jesus. His provision is excessive. He's more than enough. I'm going to finish, finally, with this life-giving provision. It's largely hidden from us in our supermarket cling-film food culture, but put starkly, there is an equation, a a brutal equation, at the center of every meal that you and I enjoy, and it's this. Either I die, or it dies. Either I die, or it dies. Whether it's a carrot or a cow, a lamb or a lettuce, either the food dies or I die. Would you agree with me? The only thing which is exception to that rule is a few minerals, maybe salt occasionally, but there is a death at the center of every meal, and rightly so. It would have been very obvious in the agrarian society of Jesus' day. Now have a look down at the end of verse 50. We didn't have it read. Jesus is the bread which one may eat and not die. In other words, eating him enables us to live. End of verse 51, this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. In other words, he's willing to die so that we might live. He embraces that brutal equation at the center of every meal and he says, I don't want you to die so please eat me. Please believe in me. I'm willing to take the hit for your life. He says, spiritually speaking, I am the only food which is volunteering to die for you. And what a meal I provide. It'll simply be divine, he says. Either I die or he dies. And can I say, friends, he's already chosen his path. He has already died for us. And so for every Christian here, our path is already chosen too. He has chosen life for us. He died so that we might live. Isn't that wonderful? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the bread of life to us. And we pray that you would help us to feed off him this week, not to look for spiritual candy floss, but to have him as the wholesome spiritual meal we need.
And we pray that our testimony would be that he is our portion, that he is enough. Amen.